Well, I'm not sure. Keith had tonsillitis, so I'm not quite sure what sort of medicine he's taken to make him so funny. He's not normally so funny, um, but it's great to have uh, Philip back as well. Philip had the inestimable privilege, which he didn't mention, of being my French teacher. What a privilege that was for Philip back in the day. I, I had no clue what was going on in the French class whatsoever, uh, but it's lovely to see Philip and Rachel and the family back uh, today. I don't know what sort of a week that you've had because many of the things that were cancelled with that dreaded word, which we won't mention here for a couple of years, are back on again. And one of those is the nativity uh, plays again. And you can imagine what uh, Jensen was like having to sit for 45 minutes in a nativity play. So again, we had the privilege of watching him this week, which actually brought smiles to our faces. It was uh, wonderful to see that. And I'm sure some of you have had the privilege going to some of those things, but there's also been a lot of bad news too. If you've been watching the news this week, there's been strikes, strikes that have been planned, strikes that have happened, strikes that might happen across the postal service, across the NHS, people who should be getting paid or not getting paid what they should be. And so there's been lots of chat about strikes there's been lots of chat about flu and the levels of flu now rising above the name that we won't mention here from the pulp and lots of negative news about that. And then, of course, what about Harry and Meghan? Or should I say H and M, as they're more affectionately known? Kind of this war of words now being played out, not in the private of family homes, but across a Netflix documentary series for a hundred million Lots of, lots of bad news. And as we go to the book of Isaiah, we meet the prophet. And he goes to the people of God who haven't been listening to God for over 50 years. So Isaiah has to come and speak to them about turning from their sin, about changing their ways, about coming back to God, about reconsecrating themselves, about pursuing holiness rather than their own happiness. And so God, through His Spirit, gives a word to Isaiah to speak to God's people. And you'll see out in our windows here as a church, as you come in, you'll see our little theme over this Christmas is that we want to offer people words of comfort and joy as we take that from that great Christmas carol. But as we look at Christmas according to Isaiah, what you and I are going to find is words of judgment and hope. We're going to find words of judgment and hope. So let's see what this future newsreader for the people of God had to say to them in this particular circumstance. Who was Isaiah? Well, he was a prophet during the reign of the Assyrian Empire in particular. And God raised him up to speak a word of judgment and hope to the people of God. The kingdom of God at this time is divided. Israel was in the northern kingdom and Judah was in the southern kingdom. Isaiah was a royal prophet, particularly to the southern part of God's kingdom. He ministered in and around Jerusalem. He, he spoke to the great and to the good. And Micah was a contemporary of his, another prophet, but he was more of a, a village prophet, a rural prophet. And Micah in Micah 5 foretold that the baby was going to be born, and he was going to be born in a, a village. But Isaiah, the royal prophet, he spoke about the baby being born to a virgin, two contemporaries, two slightly different ministries. There's four kings in and around Isaiah's ministry. Uzziah, he's raised up, and then he dies. Jotham is raised up, and then he dies. 
Ahaz is raised up and then he dies and then King Hezekiah. But last week we looked at Christmas according to Eden or Christmas in paradise. And we looked at Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and we, we saw that this is the announcement of the first Christmas message. That God's people, Adam and Eve, had rebelled against God's good and His holy and His wonderful purposes. And rather than wanting to be subservient to God, they wanted to be God. They wanted to know good and evil. And so what happens is judgment comes upon them, but God announces a gospel. God announces good news way back in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, that a serpent crusher was going to come, and He was going to come from the seed of a woman. And so we think... There's lots of judgment that we're going to see in this book this morning. But there's rays of hope bursting in the background. So keep your eye out for, for the seeds of hope in the midst of this judgment. Some people have said Isaiah is like the fifth gospel. In fact, there's about 47 different parts of Isaiah that are quoted in the New Testament. The apostles and the disciples loved this book because it spoke and it whispered of Christ. So let's look at the first movement. There's three major movements we're going to see. Let's see the problem in this book. We're going to see it particularly in Isaiah chapter 1 and in Isaiah chapter 6. There's a problem. The people of God have rejected the holy seed of God. So let's read Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and keep your Bibles open or keep your digital devices to the ready, and let's skip through this book together. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that's in the south, in the days of the four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people, they, they don't understand what a sinful nation, a, a people laden with iniquity, offspring. Do you remember last week we said that Satan was going to have an offspring, but also the virgin would have an offspring? Offspring of of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they've forsaken the Lord. They have, listen to this, despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Will you still be struck down? Will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What an utter denouncement of the people of God. What a ministry God had called Isaiah, the royal prophet. To imagine moving with the great and the good and going in and denouncing all of their ways. Why? They had experienced 50 years of an Indian summer. How many of you have said to me over the years, when things are going well, I don't seem to need God? But when life is really hard for me, Johnny, that's when I need Him. The people of God had experienced 50 years of incredible prosperity, incredible safety at their borders, incredible produce and fruit from the land. They'd built 
bigger houses and bigger temples. But their hearts had grown cold. The people of Judah have quickly forgotten the salvation of their God who had brought them out of 400 years of bondage and choose now to go about rather than worshiping God, they're worshiping themselves. I read this quote to you a couple of years ago, but it's particularly helpful again when we see this drift in the people of God in Isaiah's day. D.A. Carson wrote this, People don't drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness. People do not gravitate towards prayer. People do not gravitate towards obedience and to Scripture and to faith and to delighting in the Lord. Rather, we, we drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift naturally towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We, we drift towards superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of law self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godliness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. The people of God in every day and generation never drift right towards God. We drift left away from Him. And it reminded me of my paddleboarding experiences. My lovely wife bought me a present that was a paddleboard. Now it was turquoise and orange. You know, sometimes as a man, you get a present that's somewhat for you, but it's somewhat not for you. But that's really for another time to get into the intricacies of this. But I am such a novel paddleboarder that when I get onto the paddleboard, I'm so wobbling around and concerned that I'm not going to fall in in Ballyhome Bay and everybody laugh at me on, on the shoreline. It's incredible then when I actually can the old time lift up my head for a second and think I'm good, how far I've drifted. It's almost imperceptible that I go, that's where I started at the coastline. Now I'm a hundred yards down the coastline. Coastline hasn't moved, but I have moved. The people of God in every day and generation, unless they have their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, we will naturally drift if we don't keep our eyes fixed on our God. Sin is like that in our lives, one small sin upon another, one small step away from God's righteous laws. And before we know it, like the people in Isaiah's day, we're entangled in sinful messes. Let me challenge you this Christmas. Are you drifting? Imperceptibly. It's amazing how people will say to me over the years, I just don't know how I got here. I don't know how my paddleboard, well, I, I kind of do know because I'm rubbish at it and can't lift up my eyes. But if I could, I would be able to steer and say, well, I need to keep myself anchored to this part of the coastline so I don't drift out to sea. They, like me, at times have taken their eyes off Jesus. But Isaiah would say to the people later in the book, the, the word of the Lord in Isaiah 57 verse 14, the Lord says, let my people return to me, remove every obstacle from their path, build the road and make it ready. I am high. I am the holy God who lives forever. I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with people. What sort of a people do we need to be who are humble and repentant 
so that I can restore their confidence and hope. Let me challenge you this Christmas, don't drift. Don't drift. Fix your eyes on the Christ of Christmas. So this is the problem. By nature, we reject the holiness of God, the holy seed of God. But here comes the good news. Look at the second movement here. There's now a promise. There will be the growth of the holy seed. Hope now begins to peek through the judgment of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Keep your Bibles in front of you. Let's keep moving here. There's lots of denouncements and judgments against the people. But then there's a glimmer of hope. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord, or the shoot of new growth of the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. I'm told by people that there's nothing better than eating the produce of your own garden. Now, again, I know nothing about gardening, but people say there's nothing better than eating the things that you've grown yourself. And it was the same in, in, in the people's day in this context. They love to eat the, the produce of, of their own land, but, but there's something growing here, and it's, it's not an ordinary shoot. It's not an ordinary branch. It's something very special about this branch. This branch is the figure of the Messiah who's sprouting forth from David's lineage. Jeremiah, another prophet, said this in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Zechariah, verse 3, another prophet said, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigning Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. In the midst of these 66 chapters, in the fourth chapter, we start to see a little glimmer of hope. But then let's keep moving. Let's move to Isaiah 6. Isaiah's pretty depressed. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, all he sees is all the problems with the people, all the challenges with the people. And then he has an encounter with the holiness of God. In his mind's eye or in some spiritual encounter, he's taken up into the very throne room of God and he hears the seraphs crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is, is full of his glory and he has this incredible consecrating spiritual experience with God. He repents of his own sin, not the judgments of the people, but the problems of his own heart. And then he's been recommissioned. He's been called, he's been now set apart. And God says against the backdrop of these five gloomy chapters, there's hope, there's light. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. Imagine a forest 90% of it is gone. But there's a tree. There's a stump left. And there's a little shoot of growth coming out of the middle of it. Whose stump remains when it's felled, but the holy seed is its stump. Isaiah, I'm going to keep a remnant. 
Isaiah, even if all the people rebel, even if all the people do not listen, if they are deaf, they cannot hear. If they are blind, then they cannot see my way. Isaiah, I'm going to keep a remnant. I'm going to keep my people alive. But then there's another layer of hope. Let's go to chapter 11. Keep, keep looking here. Let's see the hope bursting forth amongst these chapters of doom and judgment. Chapter 11, verse 1. Let's keep an eye out for this seed. Let's keep an eye out for this stump. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot. Where from? From the stump of Jesse. And the branch from its roots shall bear fruit. The Lord here in chapter 10 cuts down the forests and the mighty trees of Assyria. Foreign soldiers and leaders are, are cut away and God's going to raise up a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And if you were to fast forward to the end of the Bible, you'll see the culmination of these things coming together. When Jesus declares his own identity in Revelation 22, verse 16, he said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Who, who is this Jesus? Jesus, tell us who you are. Who does he declare himself to be? In the last chapter of the Bible, I am the root I am the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Jesus is able to stand at the end of time as the triumphant Lord of history. And he looks back to Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 9 and saying, it's me. The lamb has won. The seed has triumphed. But who else is this Jesus? Well, you'll see that the seed is his son. The seed of Genesis 3, verse 15, is, is a son. And look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Go back a couple of chapters. The seed is a son. Therefore, the Lord himself, Isaiah, he'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and she'll bear a son. Isaiah God's in control. Isaiah, God is sovereign. Isaiah, God has got his unseen hand of providence over your life and the life of his people. Isaiah, rest in the promises of God. But tell me more about who this seed, who's also a son. We'll, we'll skip forward again now to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We, we see more of who he is. The people are walking in darkness, and then suddenly they see a great Light, but, but tell me, what's this seed like who becomes a son? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. But this is no ordinary son. This is no ordinary child. Some of you who are grandparents, I'll hear you say, oh, I love my grandchild. There's something special about them. And I think you're probably just a little bit far enough away from not having to see them all the time to see that perhaps they're not just so special all the time. But this is no ordinary child. Listen to what this child was going to be. The writer to the Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood... He, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity 
so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. For this reason, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why? Why did he have to be made like that? In order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This was no ordinary son. This was no ordinary child. This was the God-man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, healed the incarnate deity. This was the fullness of God dwelling bodily in a virgin baby in Bethlehem. This was the Messiah, and he was going to grow. As you've heard today, there's going to be a match on France against the Argies. Now, I would like Argentina to win because of Messi. It's incredible. I did a little bit of a Google search last night. How many articles talk about, is Messi the Messiah for Argentina? The hope that Messi, if he, if he lifts up that golden trophy at five or six o'clock tonight, that Argentina will heal their Messiah. But you know, Isaiah was a little, little boy. He's still quite small. But when he moved from Argentina to Barcelona, they put him on human growth hormone treatment. Why? Because he was so small. But if this little boy who was a prestigious talent, if he was to grow and take on the world of football because of the talent on his feet, they realized he needed to grow, needed to get bigger. If he was going to be the savior of football, he really needed to get bigger. And so they started to help him to, to grow. But this baby Jesus, he would grow not to be messy, but to be the real Messiah, to be the Son of God, the seed who would become a son was an ordinary boy. He was the God-man. And what sort of titles would he get? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What would this Messiah be called? And his name, his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. I wonder what encouragement that brings to your heart this morning as you look at your own personal circumstances. In fact, in the original text, it's with us is God. The writer wanted us to see Isaiah, the very presence of God being with his people, no matter how dark, no matter how gloomy the circumstances. With us is God. But what other titles will he be given? Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Just skip ahead. The government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called, and not just be called Emmanuel, it'll be called four other things, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, it's Spurgeon said this, how we need Jesus as our counselor. It was by a counselor that the world was ruined. Did not Satan mask himself in the serpent and counsel the woman with exceeding craftiness that she should take of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and in that hope that she would be like God's? Was it not that evil counsel which provoked our mother to rebel against her maker and did it and it's not effect bring sin and death into this world with all its train of woe. He says, in his day and generation, our beloved 
It was that the world should have another counselor then to restore the world if we had a counselor to destroy it. Don't we need a wonderful counselor called Jesus? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Shalom. John Calvin. Again, he writes about Jesus being this wonderful counselor. He says, Jesus, our Redeemer, is wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us. We need counsel. Let us remember he's the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember he's mighty and strong. When new terrors suddenly fly up on our lives and many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is called the eternal Father, when we are inwardly tossed by various tempests and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember Christ is the Prince of Peace. How many people walk up and down this street and they go to all sorts of counselors, and I'm sure many of them are good, but the one person they ultimately need to meet is the wonderful counselor. They need to meet the Prince of Peace. They need to know Emmanuel. But tell me more of his ministry. What's his ministry look? Let's skip ahead to Isaiah 11, verse 2. What's he going to, to do in his ministry? Isaiah sees this 700 years before his coming. And we see his ministry. Chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked Righteousness shall be his belt around his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. God is going to use his branch, his seed, his son in remarkable ways. But there's another portrait that's going to come here. The seed is not just a son, the seed is a servant. And towards the end of the book, as we skip forward to the last third, there's four songs about him. Four songs, not about a seed, but, but a servant. So let's look at the first one in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Consider this first song that is sung about Jesus, this servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And listen to these words. A bruised reed. He will not break. And a faintly burning wick. He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlines will wait for his law. Jesus is going to come and do what Israel could never do themselves. Israel were called to be a light to the nations, 
so that the nations might glorify the same God that they worshiped and, and honor him and follow him, but, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus raises up a new Israel in Jesus, a new Savior, a new seed. But, but what's his ministry going to be like? Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he won't break. I read one historian who let his mind wander this week who said this. The great prophet Isaiah may have been gathering the thin reeds which grew so plentifully in the Jordan Valley. The reeds were useful as writing instruments for the scribes because they didn't have pencils and ink pens as we have today. And as the great prophet sat at his table with his reeds tied in a neat bundle, he began to make use of them by dipping them in his inkwell to write. And as the reeds became saturated with the ink, the tips of them would eventually break down and they'd have to be discarded. And at this point, Isaiah may have drew a new reed from his bundle and continued the writing process only to find that something was terribly wrong. His new reed was damaged. And as he exerted pressure upon it, it buckled under his hand. And perhaps he was about to throw it away when suddenly a still small voice spoke to him and said, when the Messiah comes, a bruised reed he won't break. A bruised reed he won't throw away. Maybe you come to this Christmas Advent season and you yourself feel like a bruised reed. You feel like you've been discarded by life. You feel like you've been broken by life. The circumstances in your own mind and in your own thinking, in your own heart, or in your own family, or in your workplace, and you just feel broken. Let these words from the Messiah come to you. He won't throw away a bruised and a broken person. He's come to heal. He's come to restore. He's come to bind up. And, and he gets, we get another picture of what the Messiah will do, verse 3, and a faintly, maybe this feels like your faith, a faintly burning wick, verse 3, he will not, will not snuff out. He won't quench. And you say, Johnny, my faith in this Advent season, it, it's barely flickering. He can come and revive it. He can come and make it burn brightly. Again, we look at his ministry in Matthew, coming to Matthew at his tax collecting booth and to Zacchaeus. He doesn't cast aside bruised reeds. The man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, he doesn't cast away. He's compassion on the man hanging beside him on a cross at Calvary. He had compassion on Peter who had failed him and denied him. Jesus won't throw away a bruised and a broken person. He's come to bind up, he's come to mend, he's come to heal, he's come to restore, he's come to forgive. And what else? Look at chapter 43, verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged. He's going to get to the end, he's going to get to the finish line. The Messiah will accomplish that which he's been set forth to do. He has his face set like flint to go to Jerusalem on a particular day, at a particular season, to be the sin bearer. And we see him not faltering in his ministry, even though he was tempted, even though he was discouraged. We don't see him faltering in the wilderness. 
We don't see him faltering when the disciples have no faith in him. We don't see him faltering when the Pharisees and the chief priests plotted against him. We don't see him faltering when he knew Judas would betray him. We don't see him faltering when he's sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane. He doesn't falter when he's whipped and he's scourged and he's beaten by the Roman army. He doesn't falter when people came forth and wanted Barabbas freed and not him. He doesn't falter when he's on that road to Golgotha. He doesn't falter when the bore the full penalty of God's wrath against him. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus didn't falter. In our place, condemned, he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. The seed was a son, but he was also a suffering servant. And Isaiah saw that most marvelous vision of the Lord Jesus on the cross 700 years before it happened. That he said in Isaiah 53, verse 1, who's believed our message? Who's believed it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And after all you've heard this morning, listen to this. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had, no, he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep of what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his or her own way, but what did God the Father do? He laid the iniquity of us all on That's why Handel said, hallelujah, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigneth. But lastly, and very quickly, which I think is the only time when I lie in the pulpit, when I say very quickly, the promise, forgiveness for an unholy people. One writer says, ever since God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, We've lived in an unnatural environment, a world in which we were not designed to live. We were built to enjoy a garden without weeds. We were built to enjoy relationships without friction. But something is wrong. We know it, both within ourselves and the world. Deep down inside, we, we sense we're out of the nest, always, listen to this, always ending the day in a hotel room and never fully at home. And so the invitation comes to us at the end of this book. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come. Come to the waters. You have no money. Don't worry about it. Just come. Come buy and eat. 
buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why would you spend your money for that which is not bread and, and, and labor for things which do not satisfy? Isaiah says, listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. This world offers us a marketplace of things that will never ultimately satisfy you, but they will keep getting you back to think they will. And what must we do as we receive this invitation? We must forsake our sin. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon this is Christmas, according to Isaiah. Words of judgment, but words of wonderful hope. And Jesus himself did come, and one day he stood with the weary, and the broken, and the worn out, and the harassed group of people. And he offered them a very simple invitation. To you is not yet a Christian, and to you who are a Christian, he invites them to respond to the gospel. He said, come. Come, all of you who are weary and broken. Come, come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What would stop you coming to Christ today? Let us pray.